Thank you, Howard. <clears throat> um, it's good to be back. I've forgotten how to do this. Y'all are going to have to bear with me. Oh, I remember. Um, I think. No. We uh, uh, have... We're, we're in what I consider the, the dry, dumber, summer doldrums of Houston. Uh, it's hot. It's not fun to get out. It's not fun to... Did you know which towns in the United States of America have the largest system of tunnels and uh, overheads, catwalks some, but basically tunnels? There are two that, that compete with each other for the greatest number of miles or footage. Houston and... Minneapolis, Minnesota. We do it because in the summertime, you can't walk outside in Houston in a suit without becoming a swimming pool. They do it because in the wintertime, you can't walk out without becoming an iceberg. And, and I appreciate everybody who gets up and, and gets out and comes here. As we roll through summer, um, uh, I do think the heat has an effect upon us. And what we need to be is uh, people who uh, uh, are rejuvenated in spite of the heat. But as we look forward to August, when we have our kind of focus back on getting everybody out of vacation and getting everybody back, uh, I'm working real hard on trying to figure out how to target the class where we hit a point that makes it easy for people to plug back in. And so y'all need to be uh, uh, aware of that as the faithful folks who are here in the summer and and uh, I'm hoping to get us moved through to a point where uh, mid to late August uh, we can hit the poetry in the Bible, which is Psalms and Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, uh, which we may have to excuse some kids for. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, did you know the Song of Solomon? <clears throat> While I'm rambling for a moment, the Song of Solomon is a book that when the Jewish priests would read it afterwards, they were required to go wash their hands because it was, um, it's, it's actually quite a, uh, maybe we should have Lewis teach that week on the Song of Solomon. Um, now, we, we will uh, uh, see if I can make it through that, but uh, um, we, we, we will try and do the poetry books, and then after that, we get to what I think is some of the most fun part of this class. We get to the prophets. Um, the prophets are fun because the way I hope we teach the prophets is to go through the prophet books themselves and plug them into the history that was going on at the time. So we understand some kind of history. And I hope to do that by the time we hit the prophets, we're not just looking at Israelite history, but we'll try to put it in a framework of what was going on in world history at the time because we've got the civilization of Greece unfolding for some of that, and we've got the Persian civilization, and we've got some information that helps us put the Bible into context of our world history as well. So those are exciting things that are ahead, and that doesn't mean that, that it's dull and boring and hot in here during the summer, but uh, um, we've got uh, some good things to go through. The, today we go through Samuel. Um, last point before I get started. Uh, I, I've got to thank uh, Edward Fudge, although honestly he wants me to thank y'all because he had the time of his life coming in here teaching, and he's just beaming big and bright uh, 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 over that and over, we've left our son Will in Switzerland at a study um, a place called Labrie, it's a community of Francis Schaeffer and his wife Edith had started though, 
Uh, she's now living in Minnesota, I believe, and, and Francis is deceased. But uh, their children run it. And uh, it's a, a wonderful Christian study community. And Will just emailed me, uh, got an email from him this morning saying that in the library there, they have one of Edward Fudge's books. And so uh, Edward's, uh, 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 I'm sure, uh, going to be even more excited to hear that. But he had an absolute ball. But I thank him. I thank Lewis for, for teaching while I was gone. Lewis, bless his heart, teaches on the 4th of July weekend, which is, means he doesn't get to go anywhere. And uh, everyone else does. And uh, it's a tough, tough weekend to teach. So thank you, my friend, from the bottom of my heart. Um, and I, I thank Philip, because Philip does double time. Uh, uh, he's got to, to do all of Edward's uh, uh, stuff on even more than he does for me. And, and thank you, Philip, for staying plugged in as well. <laughs> Howard, Robert, all the others. Um, um, I, Becky and I could not leave, would not have been able to do this trip without uh, those people and, and their willingness to always be steadfast in what they do. So thank you all. Uh, I'm back, and uh, uh, let's talk about Samuel. I love the book of Samuel. I say the book of Samuel because I studied Hebrew and took a degree in Hebrew. See, in Hebrew, you have the book of Samuel. We have two books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. How did we get there? Well, before we do that, let's get there verbally. Are you all ready? Let's see if you forgot how to get to Samuel in your Bible. We started with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. Hey, we're there. Um, it was easier to remember those if you were a Jew because uh, they didn't have 1st and 2nd Samuel. They only had one book. And uh, uh, it was not until, let's see if I can make it through this. Does that show up? Oh, uh, yeah, it doesn't, does it? Okay, tablet. Okay, and then take the blank off. And then try laptop. <laughs> oh, we have the technology. We can make it work. Um, okay, maybe. Background. Um, in the Old Testament, there are about six historical kingdom books that record events during the kings of Israel. And uh, of those six, you've got 1st and 2nd Samuel, you've got 1st and 2nd Kings, you've got 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Okay, put Chronicles on the shelf right now, and let's just talk about Samuel and Kings. The reason why is uh, uh, Samuel, calling it 1st and 2nd Samuel, that wasn't in the original. You don't find in, in um, the original... Uh, for Samuel did not write this book, understand, either one of these books. Um, you don't find something across the top that says 1 Samuel. Uh, what you do have is originally um, one common book, and it was when the Greek Jews, remember the Jewish scholars translated in Alexandria, Egypt, we believe, the Old Testament into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. Okay, it's abbreviated LXX, which stands for 70 in Roman numerals, because supposedly there were 70 scholars who did this. By the way, do you know the Greek word for 70? Septuagint, okay? Uh, so this is that LXX means Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Well, when the Greeks start translating, uh, or, or the Hebrews, Greek Hebrews, start translating this book into Greek, the first thing they're doing is they almost double the size of the book because Hebrew writing does not have any 
vowels. Greek does, like English. And you just start filling in all the vowels and all are just right there. You've just doubled the length. Well, if they're writing these things on scrolls, scrolls came in, oh boy, this is a mistake. I haven't reviewed this in 20 years. I think they came in 24-foot lengths, but since this is being taped, if I'm wrong, then I confess it now. Um, <laughs> um, I think they were 24-foot lengths for scrolls. And that's why, for example, the, the book of Luke and Acts, both written by the same guy, Luke, but it's divided up into two books because he'd run out of 24 feet of scroll by the time he'd finished Luke's, so he starts back up with a new scroll for Acts. That's how you have two books there. So these guys who are translating this, um, they run out of scroll, so they divide it up. And what you had in the Septuagint, they call it the first and the second book of kingdoms. And then what we call first and second kings, they called the, anybody care to guess? The third and the fourth book of kingdoms. Then the church takes this and translates all of the Bible into Latin in the first few hundred years after Christ. That's called the Vulgate. Okay? And in the Vulgate, they shortened kingdoms and just made it kings. So they had the first and second book of kings and then the third and fourth book of kings. Then by the time you get up to, to the English Bibles that are being put out uh, in the late 1400s, they change it from Kings for the first two books to Samuel. So it becomes 1st and 2nd Samuel. And then the, what used to be 3rd and 4th Kings gets bumped up the ladder, you know, because you've knocked off the first two. It'd be senseless to have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 3rd and 4th Kings. So they changed that to 1st and 2nd Kings. Okay orientation here on how we get to 1st and 2nd Samuel. A good name for the book, in a sense, are the books, because the books themselves start out with the story of Samuel. And he is the major prophet that moves Israel from a, a period where judges administer the land to a place where kings reign over the land. The time period we're looking at for 1st and 2nd Samuel is from the end of the Judges through just about the end of David's reign. All right? Uh, David being the second king in Israel. Um, this is more important, though, because we see here a movement from what we call a theocracy to what we call a monarchy. God did not give Moses the law to set up a, an earthly king. God gave Moses the law to set up a, a country that was ruled by a king, but the king was God. So our theological term de jure is theocracy. A theocracy, when we talk about that, is a form of government where God is the ruler or the king. You can compare or contrast that to what we have, a democracy, where people are supposed to be rule, ruling the land. We do that through voting, right? Or a monarchy where a king rules. Um, um, and Israel was set up to be a theocracy. God was to be their king. There was to be no other. Now this is interesting also because this carries importance to us in the church. 
because we understand later uh, the book of Hebrews and Jesus himself and Paul make it clear that, that the church is the true Israel. As Paul says in Romans or in Galatians, we're the children of Abraham by faith to whom the promises were made. And we, the church, as the people of God, what kind of uh, government do we have? We're a theocracy. God rules over us. Demon is not called our king. Demon's a pastor. He's a shepherd. He helps lead and guide us. But who is our ruler? Jehovah God. See, God set up Israel to be a theocracy because the church is a theocracy and Israel was a shadow of what we are the reality of. And so um, God set it up to be a theocracy. The problem is, is the people weren't happy with that. The people wanted something more. The people wanted a king. During this time period, the kings of the Philistines were just beating the daylights out of the Israelites right and left. And the Israelites kept thinking, gee, if we could just get a king, our lives would be so much better. Then we'd have a king go out there. We wouldn't have to wait for a judge or a prophet or a Samson or someone like that to come along. We'd have a king who would constantly be there to defend us. I get ahead of ourselves. So we get started now with Samuel. And we see that Samuel, we don't have an exact chronology, but we can piece together that we're probably talking about 1100, 1105 B.C. Okay? Or, um, just for grins, since we're being kind of pedantic for a moment, um, you all know what uh, B.C. stands for, right? B.C. is before Christ, isn't it? Did you know that Jews and non-Christians don't like to use that? Because, first of all, they might do it if you put B.J. before Jesus. When I gave the commencement address in high school, uh, the, the, the address I gave was entitled, To Whom Much is Given, Much is Expected, to my high school graduating class. And I referenced the passage from Jesus, and I said, as recorded in the Gospel of, I guess, Luke, I think I, I referenced it. Um, Jesus Christ said, to whom much is given, much is expected. The school board would not let me say that. I was allowed to say Jesus, but not Jesus Christ, because Christ is a reference to his Messiahship. That was not his name. Jesus was his name. Christ is a label that we give to him as the anointed one of God. So to say before Christ... Uh, scholars and, and non-Christians and Jews don't like that because it's, it's attributing Messiahship to the Lord Jesus. So do you know what they use instead? BCE. And do you know what that stands for? Some of you do or you wouldn't have said it. Before the Common Era. Okay? So if you read a scholarly work, you'll see things referenced as B.C., uh, they'll be referenced B.C.E. instead. Instead of A.D., which is the year of our Lord in Latin, um, they don't get into that either. That's considered C.E., which you can guess stands for Common Era. So, um, Samuel was born, y'all won't get offended if I say B.C., I hope. <laughs> Samuel was born around 1105 B.C.E before Christ, or BCE, if you would like to use the uh, uh, informed uh, uh, abbreviation. 
His mother is Hannah. What I'd like to do if we've got the time, and I'm going to make a point of taking the time, is I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going to read you uh, kind of what I consider the... the it, it, I'm, I'm reading you from here, but I'm going to be interpreting as I go along some. And the way I'm reading, I'm not reading word by word. I'm, I'm kind of like the stone that you know, when we were kids, we'd take those flat stones and skip them across the water and see how many times you skip. I'm going to kind of just skip across here. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them, please. If you don't, uh, bring them next week. And uh, um, you can kind of skip with me as we go through here because I want us to see a few things that I think are best illustrated uh, by actually looking at the text uh, in a little bit more detail. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 1, it begins, uh, There was a certain man from Rathium, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Elkanah was the son of all these people. Verse 2, he had two wives. Okay, that's already a prescription for trouble. <laughs> Can you imagine two wives telling you to take out the garbage? <laughs> um, no, I'm joking. That, that We all do that voluntarily. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. She made a great cheese sandwich. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> this is famous, that Penina cheese sandwich. Um, when you look at the Bible, frequently you can tell who the good people are by whether or not their name has survived in history. People name their daughters Hannah. Very few name their daughters Penina. <laughs> That's an indication of what's going to come in this story. This is the truth. I mean, do these names, you know, uh, uh, anyway. All right, year after year, oh wait, Penina had children. Hannah had none. Verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to Yahweh Almighty at Shiloh, where these Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons of Eli, were priests. They're bad guys. You don't name your sons Hophni and Phinehas either. There are some Phineases, but typically they don't put that H in it like this one has, Phinehas. Um, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he'd give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. See, when they sacrificed, they'd be taking the meat up there and, and the fat would get burned to the, uh, to the Lord. That's the Lord's portion. We covered this, some of this back when we covered Exodus, but this is a refresher. You burn it, the fat, the Lord gets. The meat would be boiled, the priest could get some of what was boiled, and then the, the roasted meat that's left goes to the family. And that's uh, uh, that way the... Meat was killed in a kosher fashion because it was for sacrifice and the family gets to eat the kosher meat. And, and, and so they've got the meat here and he, uh, Elkanah would give his wife Peninnah and all of her sons and daughters portions, verse 5, but to Hannah he'd give her a double portion because he loved her and the Lord, Yahweh, had closed her womb. She could not have children. She was... Um, it's not sterile, it's uh, barren. barren. Thank you. Whew, I've been gone a while. Um, now, look at verse 6. 
because Yahweh had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Think about your family situation. Is there anybody in your family that purposely provokes and irritates you? Um, is, it, is it the other wife of your husband? <laughs> that's, that's when it's really bad, you know. Um, this went on year after year. See, the reason I pause here is because so often we read the Bible and we don't think of it in terms of real people and how they're really feeling. These are people just like you and me. It goes on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. It was serious enough, she cries. She loses her appetite. She can't eat. She even gets a double portion of the meat. It's, it's wasted. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, we know this isn't going to work, right? <laughs> he would say, Hannah, I feel for you. This just isn't very good. Let me... No, that's not what it says. He says, in classic husband fashion, Hannah... Why are you crying? Why don't you eat? Why are you sad? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Well, that doesn't do squat. Um, one time, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, is there sitting by a chair, sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And Hannah is so bitter in her soul, she's just bawling. She wept much. She prays to the Lord, and she made a vow saying, Oh, Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give me a son. If you will do that, I will give him to the Lord, to Yahweh, for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. He'll be a, a Nazarite, as we talked about. And she kept on praying to the Lord. Well, the priest is watching her. And he observes her mouth. Because you see, Hannah's praying in her heart, in verse 13, and her lips are moving, but her voice was not heard. So the priest figures she's drunk. So he says to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Put away your wine. He was not a good counselor, Lewis. I mean, that might be good advice for some people, but didn't quite meet her needs. She says, not so, my Lord. I'm not drunk. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I haven't been drinking wine or beer. I wasn't pouring that in my mouth. I was pouring my soul out to the Lord. Don't take me for a wicked woman. I'm praying here because I'm hurting. I got to tell you, there's nothing worse than hurting and having someone who's supposed to be a minister come kick you while you're down. And remember, we're all ministers to one another. There's nothing worse than hurting and having someone who's supposed to minister to you kick you while you're down. 
She responds and she says, that's not what's going on. And Eli answers and says, sorry, <laughs> go in peace. And he blesses her. May God of Israel, the God of Israel, grant you what you've asked. And she said, thank you. May your servant find favor in your eyes. And she goes away and she eats. And she was no longer downcast. See, her husband didn't have the answer. And Eli didn't, and the priest didn't have the answer. The answer for her troubled soul was, may God bring deliverance to you. And that gave her back her appetite, and that gave her back her smile. So she goes home the next day. Um, she uh, lays with uh, Elkanah, and Yahweh takes an action for her. Uh, time out for another Hebrew lesson. We're going a little slow here, but this is fun, and it's the first day back. Um, if you look in verse 19, it says, early the next morning, let's look at verse 19. It says, this is, this is a good Hebrew lesson. If I haven't already made it, if I've already made it, sorry. Um, whoa. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord, what's that word there? Remembered her. Now, skeptics of the Bible read something like this and say, silly little Jews thought God had a bad memory. God had to remember her. God had forgotten what had happened the day before. This is a sign of a very impotent God. Um, those are people who are more reactionary to the Bible than they are scholars of the Bible. The Hebrew word uh, for memory is the word zakar. And uh, I guess in uh, English you'd write it something like uh, this, Z-C-H-R. Um, zakar means not remember in the sense that it had left your mind and you'd forgotten. Zakar means to take an action because of something that's in your mind, because of something you remember or, or you're thinking about, because of a thought or a memory. Memory might be a better word, because of a memory. Oh, <laughs> well, y'all got to tell me when I'm doing something goofy. Zakar means take an action because of a memory. It, so the, the word there doesn't mean that God had forgotten all about her. The word remember there means God took an action because of what God had in fact not forgotten, because of a memory that God had. And what was the action God took? She became pregnant. She conceived. And um, uh, in course of time, she conceives, gives birth to the son. She names him Samuel, which means heard of God, because I asked Yahweh for him, and Yahweh heard. Now, the, the story continues, and it, it is one of the most touching stories I know. Uh, but let's get caught up here with the PowerPoint. Um, uh, the birth is a long time coming, but it comes. Samuel is born of a vow, a vow his mother took. You give me a son, Lord, and I will give the son back to you. This is a story that's very important for any of us who either A, have offspring, or B, anticipate having offspring, or C, 
um, have children who may have offspring, okay? Which is a good bit of us, may not be everybody in here, but let me tell you why. God's the same guy that he was 3,000 years ago when this happened. And when you see what happens to the life of Samuel, it happens because his mother made a vow and she kept the vow, as we'll see in a moment. She took Samuel and she gave Samuel back to the Lord. And I believe, whether it's through a child dedication process here or individually with a husband and a wife, or if your spouse is not uh, uh, willing, by yourself, everyone with a child, even if the child's now 45 years old and you've never done it before, anyone with a child has to say or ought to say, Lord, this child is from you, and I give this child back to you. This is not mine. This is yours. And thank you for the honor of being the parent on this planet for this child. That's what Hannah does with her baby. And it's one of the most touching things. Whoops, we're skipping here. Let's ignore that for a moment. We'll come back to it. It's one of the most touching things that Jan Victors painted in Amsterdam in the 1640s. 1645. This is Hannah. This is the boy Samuel. This is Eli, the high priest. See, when the time came to go back for the sacrifice the next year after the birth of the boy, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, you go, I'm going to stay here and, and continue to nurse the baby. And when the baby Samuel is weaned, then I will go and I will take him to the Lord like I promised. Now, women then nursed their children a lot longer than women do now, in part because they couldn't keep milk fresh and they didn't have powdered formula. Uh, that they could make fresh with water. And so it was not at all uncommon to nurse through the age of three or four even back then. Um, so we don't know the age, but we surmise that it was probably around the age of three or four before Hannah goes. But Hannah takes this son she wept and prayed for. And she gives him to Eli the priest and says, Remember me, I'm the one who you thought was drunk but was just of anguished heart. And you told, you said, may God give you what you prayed for. Well, what I was praying for was a son. And I had promised God I'd give the son back to God. And so here is the son, and he's here to serve the Lord under you. Um, that touches me. That touches me. Uh, um, I, I can't envision taking one of my children and giving them up like that. Um, uh, she didn't quit loving the boy. The Bible goes on to say every year she would make him a special robe. And every year when the family went to Shiloh for the sacrifice, she would bring that robe and that labor of love. Um, um, Samuel grows up in remarkable ways. And he grows up hearing the word of the Lord. Um, in chapter 2 of Samuel, we digress for just a moment, and we hear about Eli's wicked sons. Eli had, and I, I'm going to skip a little bit here in the interest of time, but Eli has very wicked sons. The sons uh, don't do the sacrifices right. They take more than their share of the meat. Uh, they've got ruffians who get the meat. They say, you know, typically back then they had a tradition, the scripture tells us, of, of taking the servant for the priest would take a three-pronged fork and stick it into the boiling pot where the meat's boiling. And whatever they skewed with the prong, they'd bring out, and that's what the priest would get. 
And these guys were saying, hey, we'll have none of that. And we want a cut of roast, prime roast. We want it before you burn the fat to the Lord. And if the men said, no, this is a sacrifice, this is to be, they say, hey, you give it to us or we're going to take it by force. These weren't really good guys following in the footsteps of dad for the priesthood. Samuel, on the other hand, is. And Samuel is, is a good guy and, and he's, he's doing this. There's an interesting story about Samuel hearing the voice of the Lord. And... Um, um, We'll get into that in a moment, maybe. I got to tell you, meanwhile, Hannah gets more kids out of this. She gets three more sons and two daughters. But uh, um, the Lord basically says, okay, I'm going to rip the priesthood away from Eli and his sons, and they're all going to die because they're, they're grieving me and they're sinning greatly against me. And then in chapter 3, the Lord calls Samuel. I love this voice, or this passage, because it starts out 3 verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now, I believe that's in there because I believe the scripture was being written and this was being put together by men who did hear the voice of the Lord. The scripture, this scripture in Samuel, we don't know who wrote it, but whoever was compiling it was compiling it by the word of the Lord from various texts and various uh, uh, copies that were out there. And so he puts in there as he compiles the history of what had happened. Back then when this occurred, it was rare for God to speak. He puts that in because it was not rare to him who's putting this together. Um, it says, in those days, word of the Lord was rare. There were, many vision, there were not many visions. So one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not gone out. Samuel was lying in the temple of the Lord, and the Lord calls Samuel. Samuel. Samuel answers, here I am. And he runs to Eli and says, here I am. You called me. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. Samuel goes back and lays down. Again, the Lord calls, Samuel! Samuel gets up, runs to Eli, says, Here I am, you called me. Eli says, My son, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now, Samuel didn't know the Lord. And the word of the Lord hadn't yet been revealed to him. So the Lord calls Samuel a third time. Samuel gets up, goes to Eli, and says, Here I am, you called me. Eli realizes this has got to be the Lord calling. I hadn't been calling the boy. So Eli says, Samuel, go lay down. If you hear me call you again, say, speak, Yahweh, your servant's listening. So Samuel went, lays down in his place. Lord came, stood there calling as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel says, speak for your servant is listening. And Yahweh says to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that'll make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. I just think... That's the kind of thing I wish I could put in the back of my brain and love to use in everyday conversation. I heard something that made the ears of everyone tingle. <laughs> At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family. And he goes on to say what it is. So Samuel, you know, I'm basically I'm going to kill him and all of his family. Um, Samuel lays down until morning, then opens the doors of the house of Yahweh. And he does not want to tell Eli what the vision was. But Eli says, Samuel, come here. And Samuel says, here I am. He says, well, what did he say? Don't hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything God's told you. So Samuel tells him everything, which basically is you're going to die and your boys are going to die and God's upset and he's ripping it all from you. 
and it's a promise, and this will never be taken away, and that's so be it. So Samuel tells him, and Eli says, he is the Lord. Let him do what's good in his eyes. And Yahweh was with Samuel. Now, meanwhile, what happens is the Philistines come, and they capture the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 4. Um, the way they did it is they're fighting the Israelites, they're beating them like a drum, and the Israelites get this bright idea. The Israelites say, whoa, I don't want to go there yet. The Israelites say, hey, we've got the magic Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines may be beating us like a drum, but it doesn't matter. Let's get the magic Ark out. Because like Indiana Jones fans knows, you know, that's the secret weapon. If Hitler had had that, World War II would have been over. Remember the movie, Indiana Jones? All right, so they go to get the ark. The problem is God didn't watch the movie, and God doesn't like to be treated like a magical item that can be invoked by the unholy anytime they want to. So the ark doesn't do any good to the Jews. 30,000 of them get slaughtered in the battle, and the Philistines get the ark. Now, at that point, God might start working some of his uh, uh, unique... Uh, 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 skills because it's not the Israelites who are going to get the day saved. Now the Philistines have his ark and they're not entitled to it. God doesn't dwell with the, the unholy Philistines. So he brings a curse upon the Philistines that's associated with the ark. Now this is important for medical history's sake because as our doctors in here will tell you um, uh, uh, if I got this right this is, medical history-wise, one of the first documented episodes if, you know, I mean, we don't have medical tests that show it, but apparently of the bubonic plague. Find it in 1 Samuel 5, 6, 9, 11, 12, and other places. The bubonic plague. I went on the website for the Centers for Disease Control. I wanted to make sure I was accurate because I figured, Oh, Dr. Barhorse has come up here and get me if I wasn't. I looked up the diagnosis for the bubonic plague. You get these swollen lymph glands called buboes caused by this plague bacteria. This typical signs most common form of human plague. It's swollen. It's very tender lymph gland accompanied by pain. A swollen gland is called a bubo. Bubonic plague should be suspected when a person develops a swollen gland, fever, chills, headache, extreme exhaustion, history of possible exposure to rats. Person usually becomes ill two to six days after being infected. And here is a picture given by the Center for Disease Control of buboes, swollen glands. Now, that's important because the Hebrew word for what these people get afflicted with is basically swollen glands, uh, or tumors it's translated, but it's, a, it's a, a mass. Here, I'll put it up here for you. First Samuel, the Lord brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. That's the NIV translation. Not the most accurate word, but it's a swollen. Um, and rats appeared in their land, and death and destruction were throughout the city. Death filled the city with panic. You know what they do? They say, let's get rid of the ark. It could be the ark, and they move it. Of course, we know bubonic plague is spread by fleas, right, who are infested, and they live in the rats, and that's what, okay. Well, the ark, you'll recall, has got a bunch of, of coverings and drapes and all this stuff, which are animal skins, which carry the fleas too. 
So they move the ark to another city, and voila, that city starts getting infected with the same um, uh, tumors. The better word is boils. It's aphalium, uh, which means boils or swellings, and specifically targets in the, the groin area and the buttocks and the legs from the Hebrew here, which is the typical place for bubonic plague outbreak to show. Um, so uh, bottom line is, is, is uh, many medical historians see this as one of the first documented examples of the bubonic plague. It was not a cool thing, and the Philistines decide they don't want that lousy ark, and they think it's just the ark. They don't realize that it's all of the rats and rodents that, that uh, uh, come together. I will also add this. If the scholars in the Middle Ages had been a little bit more adept at reading their Samuel, and picked up on the fact that the people having the bubonic plague, it's associated with all of the rats and everything and the rodents. They might have been a little smarter and, and the plague might not have devastated Europe as badly as they got rid of everything that's carrying the fleas. Um, but I digress. The transition here. Samuel, um, um, oh, transition. The ark comes back. Samuel at this point, oh, uh, uh, Eli, by the way, dies and all of his sons. I left that out. That was in the battle when uh, 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 all of the ark stuff happens. The ark gets returned to Israel. Samuel has become a, a prophet that everybody's pretty familiar with right now. Samuel goes out and subdues the Philistines. And now we get to chapter 8 and the Israelites say, Sam, we want a king. We figured it out. That's the solution to our problems. We want a king. Now, Samuel doesn't wish for a king. Samuel wishes for Samuel's sons to take over in his shoes. Uh, I'm a parent. I'd love my children to take over in my shoes. Uh, uh, I, I just think it'd be the coolest thing in the world. I think there's a natural tendency for parents to want their children to follow in their footsteps. The problem is Samuel had a calling upon his life but his boys didn't seem to be quite as holy and good. In fact, the Bible says, they did not walk in his ways, they turned aside for dishonest gain, accepted bribes, and perverted justice. So, these are the boys of Samuel. Um, so, all of the elders of Israel gather together and they say to Samuel, look, I know what your wish is. Samuel's wishes is for his boys to take over. That's not our wishes. God wishes to rule the people. That's not our wishes either. Our wishes are that we have a king. If we have a king, it would solve all these problems. Well, Samuel gets very upset. You don't offend a guy about his kids. Uh, the Lord gets upset. But the Lord ultimately says, okay, they want a king, give them a king, but you've got to warn him some stuff. You've got to warn him that here's what a king will do. He'll take your sons and make them serve with chariots and horses. They'll run in front of his chariot. They'll be the first ones killed. Some he'll assign to be commanders. Others he'll assign to plow his ground. Others to reap his harvest. Others to manufacture weapons of wars. He'll take your daughters to be cooks and bakers and perfumers. He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take your vineyards. He'll take your olive groves. He'll give them to his helpers. He'll take a, a he'll, he'll, it says he will take a tenth of your grain. What it really means is he's going to start taxing you. He's going to take taxes uh, from your grain and, and your, your wine. And he's going to do that to pay his, uh, uh, all of his, the, what's the government's officials called? 
bureaucrats. Yeah, he's going to tax you to pay the bureaucrats. And uh, uh, he's going to take your men servants, your maid servants, the best of your cattle, the best of your donkeys. He's going to take a bunch of your sheep and your flocks. You'll become his slaves. When that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you've chosen. You'll wish you had God as king again. Now, having said all that, you want a king, you got one. And uh, um, God gives the people what they wish for. Um, that's the road that's chosen, and that's the result. Now, what points do we take home from this, aside from the ones I've been throwing out as we go along? Let me add a couple. Number one, remember the church is a theocracy. We have a king. And remember, if you ask the Lord for a different king, he just might give you one. That's not a cool thing to do. The cool thing to do is for everybody, first of all, be thankful for your pastor. This is what Demon, as a good pastor, teaches us. Everyone cultivate their own relationship with God based upon the truth of his word. Okay? God doesn't want grandchildren. He wants children. We hear that. It's true. God doesn't want to have a relationship with you through someone else. God doesn't want your spouse to be the person in, 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 in between you and the Lord. God doesn't want anyone in between you and the Lord. Jesus fills that role and nobody else. So remember, we are a theocracy. God is our king. Next point, God hears prayer. Now, Howard gets up here every Sunday and prays, not so that everybody can think, gee, how pious. Not so everybody can think, well, that's good, we're remembering, and the people who wrote out the cards will feel better because they'll know we're remembering them. We pray because God hears prayer. God has set things up in a way, I, God, we're not a bunch of computers where God's just going to do it whether we pray or not. Prayer changes things. God, there are things God wants to do, but will not do until His people pray and ask for it. And Scripture is clear on that. And we'll see Jesus talking about it very clearly. You have not because you ask not. God hears prayer. Much comes from devotion, point number three. You think about Hannah. You think about her devotion of her son and giving her son over. Much, much comes from devotion. Um, um, I, I, I hear, oh, and God's always at work. I'm going to digress for one moment because something really struck me as I was listening to the prayer request and just thinking about life. I, I think this is true for some people in here. I, I think it's true for everybody. It's just a matter of degrees. Here it is. To the extent you live as the Lord wants us to live, we walk in His blessings and grace. To the extent we choose not to, and we walk outside, we walk in an area where destruction and disease and uck comes all over us. And that's not to say that it, when you walk with the Lord that you don't get those things. You do. That's not to say if disease falls upon you, gee, you must have been outside the will of God. That's not true. But as a general rule, it's as Paul says in Galatians, you reap what you sow. And you hear about people who have disease upon disease upon disease on their deathbed. And you'd like to come in and say, 
Accept the Lord God in your heart and your life will be changed. It will be. But if they had done it 30 years earlier and taken a different path and a different road, their life would be so different. You truly reap what you sow. And we have choices in front of us every day. And I urge us all to remember that devotion to the Lord changes who we are and what we're able to do in this life. I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about the joy and experiences on planet Earth as we await the day of Jesus. Does that make sense? Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for our safe travels and thank you for our safe return. And Lord, I thank you for the honor of getting to teach uh, this class. Uh, uh, it is my prayer, Lord, that you will uh, uh, work through what uh, I say uh, uh, or work in spite of what I say uh, sometimes and, and that your spirit will touch our hearts, clean out our ears, uh, renew our minds, uh, guide our lives. Give us conviction, Lord. Stir up within us holiness. Stir up within us devotion. Stir up within us a new conviction that we are going to make the choices that are right by you. And by the strength that you give us, Lord, may we then walk that path. Make us today more holy than we were yesterday. Make us tomorrow more holy than we are today. This is our prayer through our Lord and King, Jesus. Amen.